Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, just when you thought the Vancouver real estate market had hit rock bottom, the Bank of Canada says, hold my beer, as interest rate hikes at the highest level in 15 years. Plus, he has a new cabinet, but the challenges of affordability, housing, and mental health and addiction still remain. Premier David Eby joins us. And hot story, hot take, Langley Township considers a new separate RCMP detachment from Langley City. Why don't we forget this nonsense and move towards a region-wide police force? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. with the story of the day, and that's your pocketbook. The Bank of Canada raised its benchmark interest rate by half a percentage point to 4.25% today, the latest oversized step in its effort to tamp down inflation. Canada's central bank has raised its rate, get this, seven times this year in its fight to wrestle inflation into submission. Now, in the process, the bank has taken its rate from basically zero to its highest point since 2008, its fastest pace of rate hike hikes uh, since inflation targeting began in the 1990s. Those rate hikes have had a huge impact on the rates that Canadian consumers and businesses get from their banks on things like saving accounts and mortgage, and of course, there's a huge impact on the Vancouver real estate market, and as I said, your pocketbook as well. Joining me now to talk about these rate increases is Steve Soretsky, a realtor for Oakwin Realty. Steve, thank you for joining us. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on. Uh, the announcement today, were you surprised that it was a, a half a point increase, uh, some were saying a quarter, or were you expecting half yourself? Uh, I mean, the market was pricing in 50. I mean, I guess my personal opinion is I thought maybe they'd go 25, but uh, I mean, at the end of the day, we're we're getting to the same same endpoint, which is you know markets were basically pricing rates to get to about four point two five, four point five. So um, you know by that measure, uh, you know we're 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 close to the end of the rate hiking cycle. I think the bigger question now is, is how long do we do we hold rates here uh, in the fourth? That's that's really the big question mark. I think for for a lot of households and and for the housing market as well, obviously. What are you hearing from your fellow uh, real estate agents uh, and clients in regards to what the market uh, uh, has been like in the last little while and where it might be potentially headed? Uh, I mean, I think it's it's just slow, right? I mean, I think everyone's doing less volume, whether you're a realtor, you're a mortgage broker, you're a real estate you know, conveyance lawyer, uh, you know, you're in a property appraiser, you're, you're doing less volume. Um, so that's kind of the nature of the game. And I think that ultimately is going to filter through into the rest of the economy, maybe on a bit of a lag, right? I mean, think of, you know, obviously, you know, when you're not transacting new homes, you probably don't need a new couch and new furniture and all that other stuff. So, you know, I think that um, that it's just, you know, slower. We had a crazy last couple of years and, and a 400 basis point move in, in less than 12 months has really uh, put a dent in things, that's for sure. What keeps you up at night? I'm, I'm Because, I mean, I'm hear some stories to other real estate agents or those in the banking business. I mean, are, are, are the cons- are consumers starting to really feel it now? Oh, a hundred percent. I, I think like, you know, there's a lot of things that 
are actively being discussed. You know, we're here on the front lines talking to people day to day, uh, you know, running through various scenarios with them. So we see it and it, it maybe doesn't show up in the official statistics just yet. But I think there's a lot of underlying financial stress right now. I mean, if you think about it, the Bank of Canada's own data says that 50% of people on fixed payment variable rate mortgages, um, you know, have hit their trigger rate. And that doesn't include so that's 13% of all outstanding mortgages, not including the floating rate variable. So, you know, for example, someone that was on a floating variable mortgage with Scotia Bank, if you borrowed, you know, a million dollars on a mortgage, your, your monthly payment's up 25, about $2,500 a month. I don't know a lot of people that have an extra $2,500 kicking around after tax. So uh, this is a story. I think people, whether it's an extra 400 a month, 700 a month, you know, 1500 a month, 2500 a month, people are getting squeezed uh, unless, again, you fixed your rate. But even those people that fix their rates that are coming up for renewal are going to see, you know, an extra 250 basis point increase. So that's kind of what keeps me up at night. I think the financial stress is definitely building. Mm-hmm. And do you think that, uh, do, you, do you believe this is the right thing to do, though, in regards to what the Bank of Canada is doing? Uh, I mean, I think that, you know, inflation is a big problem. They have to get it under control. I think that they're, my opinion is I think that the Bank of Canada, my only concern is that they're looking in the rearview mirror, which is, I, I do think, you know, if you're looking at headline inflation on a year-over-year basis, you're going to miss the turn. I think they were way too late in raising rates, uh, which ultimately brought us to where we are today, which is now we're, I think, arguably, I think we're going to end up over-tightening and creating, you know, bigger problems. But, uh, you know, obviously, uh, that's just my opinion. So uh, in regards to the market next year in Vancouver real estate, I know it's very difficult and, uh, to, to sort of guess, and, and, and it's such a big market and a very unique market, and, and uh, each community is different. But uh, you expect things to be pretty quiet in regards to sales just because of what's transpired now? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we, the reality is, is like sales are really low. We also have extremely low inventory right now. There's a lot of sellers that I think are holding out, um, you know, waiting for a better market. So that's kind of suppressing, you know, new listings coming to market. So in general, there's just not a lot of activity happening. I think that, you know, we're in the classic tug of war, right, which is buyers want uh, lower prices to offset these higher interest rates and sellers are kind of clinging on to, you know, the expectations that this is going to be a short-lived housing correction and let's just, you know, delay listing until next next spring. And, uh, you know, my, my, my opinion is mortgage rates, so long as they stay here in the 5% range, I think the housing market's going to struggle. Um, and so I think there's definitely going to be an adjustment phase for sellers here moving forward. So unless we get a, you know, a drastic change in the interest rate environment, uh, where borrowing costs come down, I still think house prices have to move lower. Mm-hmm. And, and and even those interest rates, if they are moving down, we're not talking about a significant drop. There will be a drop, one assumes, but nothing major when they actually get to that point where they can start loosening uh, some of the rates. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think, I mean, we're in the fives. I think mortgage rates, you know, <laughs> even if they get down to, you know, four and a half, I, I just don't, I don't think that helps uh a lot of people. I think that the housing market, these prices have been built on, you know, over the last five years, we've averaged interest rates of about two and a half percent. And and during the pandemic went down to about 1.5. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's basically been priced for perfection. And, uh, you know, if you get mortgage rates in the fives and they drop down to four and a half, I don't think that helps a whole lot. You need to get them back down into the threes, in my opinion. So, 
Um, I don't know. Like I said, it's always hard to, to sort of figure out the direction of interest rates, but you know, to, to expect anything significant in the next three to six months, um, I think is a bit naive. And I guess the way the Bank of Canada today was speaking, generally it's always indicating uh, that there will be more rate increases, but I think they've softened their language at this point uh, moving forward. I mean, they could still do it, of course, but it's they are, I would assume from what I can tell, there's a wait and see attitude there now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you look at their wording here, they're kind of basically setting up for a pause here. Um, so maybe they squeak in another 25 basis basis point hike in January or something, and that, that's the end. Um, but, you know, we're, we're near the end, I think. But like I said, they had, uh, just because you're at the end of the hiking here, um, it, it doesn't change the fact that people are still paying an extra 500 bucks or an extra 1000 bucks a month on their mortgage. And, um, you know, but like I said, people... I think when we talk to clients and stuff like that day to day, we hear the stories, you know, people are scraping together ends meet, you know, they're starting to cut where they can elsewhere and then that reverberates across the economy. Right. So you cut, you know, additional spending in other parts of the economy uh, in order to service your higher interest rate costs. And so I think that's going to be felt, um, you know, like I said, across the broader economy. And I know that's certainly the bank of Canada's intentions. Um, so, that's kind of what we're looking forward to now, I guess. I'm very curious. Uh, we've talked about people paying um, their mortgages, but there's the other question of supply as well, which is developers who assemble land and property still have to pre-sell a lot of their condos before the bank gives them uh, the money and the capital that's required to to build the project. Are you hearing about any of this in regards to just a bit more difficult, maybe more difficult for uh, development companies to actually get the, 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 the loans from the bank that are required to, to build these um, condos and townhouses, that it, it's getting a, a tougher for them as well? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, if you look at a developer's pro forma, I mean, you have to factor in that, that the cost to, to finance the construction now has, has, you know, has gone up drastically, right? So that's just another input cost. And in, and in this environment, um, yeah, you know, like, Buyers want to be incentivized through through lower prices, but for a lot of these developers, there's not enough margin there for them to actually really reduce the prices. So what happens is they end up just hitting the pause button. And so I think, like I said, I think you're going to see housing starts really start to slow down in in the new year. And uh, I mean, it's already it's already happening. Some of the other well capitalized developers will be just fine. I think it's some of the smaller, medium sized people that are using more expensive uh, financing, more leverage, that, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a challenging time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm always amazed uh, that when you do hear uh, economists speak, they talk about, uh, you know, multiple rate hikes, but nobody ever translates that into, uh, you know, sort of real English that every every everyday people speak, which is loans and mortgages will be more expensive. Your house prices could drop. Certainly sales could drop, which impacts an entire industry. Uh, from real estate agents to um, to those who do uh, rebuilds and and uh, sell furniture, as you said, so it's a, it's a, has a, having a huge effect already, as you said, um, here in the Vancouver market for sure. Steve, thank you for your time today, my friend. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders, no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD.
That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. As we were mentioning earlier, BC Premier David Eby announced his new cabinet of 23 ministers and four ministers of state at a ceremony today in Victoria. Mr. Dix, Adrian Dix, will stay on as health minister, while former forest minister Katrina Conroy is taking over the high-ranking uh, finance portfolio from Selena Robinson, who has been moved to Minister of Post-Secondary Education and Future Skills. Uh, two new ministries are being created with the announcement, namely the Ministry of Housing, which will be read by uh, Ravi Kalon, and the Ministry of Emergency Management and Climate Readiness, to be led by Bowen Ma. Uh, Nikki Sharma was also, will also serve as BC's new Attorney General. Many uh, new faces, some older faces as well, but an interesting in Cabinet. And I thought we'd uh, check in with our good friend Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, to get his perspective perspective on on this new cabinet. Keith, welcome. Hey, Jazz. Uh, your thoughts, first of all, the overall tone, the look of this cabinet, uh, what was uh, the key message that uh, Mr. Eby was trying to send? Oh, uh, diversity on a number of fronts. So gender equity, there's actually, for the first time, more women than men in uh, um, a BC cabinet, most women than ever before, 15. Uh, diversity, seven people of color, most ever. Uh, youthfulness, there's a lot of relatively younger cabinet ministers in this in this cabinet. So I think it's the most youthful cabinet as well. I think Eby wanted to demonstrate this was going to be different. It was going to be even more. And it's interesting, he um, was informed by his office that he, when he looks at gender equity, for example, not all cabinet ministers are the same, ministries are the same in his view. Some are, are a little more senior and higher in profile than others. And that's why you see the four biggest portfolios in terms of profile, which is healthcare, public safety, the attorney general, and finance have an even split of between men and women. So it's not just the cabinet that has gender equity, it's also some of the senior portfolios. And also a historic uh, note that for the first time ever, there are um, uh, NDB cabinet ministers from the Fraser Valley. You've got Andrew Mercier in Langley, Dan Coulter, and Chilliwack and Pam Alexis in Abbotsford, Michigan. The NDP's never even elected MLAs there in general elections. They won a by-election once in Chilliwack. Uh, so that that reflects, again, the historic breakthrough in 2020 of elevating places like Langley, Chilliwack, and Abbotsford into an NDP cabinet, which has never happened before. And then Surrey, again, the fastest-growing municipality, now has four cabinet ministers. So it's um, a sign, again, that that's... Ge- geography plays a role here as well, and that's what I'll be talking on the news hour tonight. It's not just the other elements that go to determine the cabinet makeup. The geography often plays a, a role here as well. So all in all, you know, it's very interesting. I think um, it was a very uh, interesting ceremony at Government House. The biggest cheer that anyone got was Nikki Sharma going in to become the first Asian, South Asian woman uh, to hold the Attorney General's uh, portfolio. That got a huge cheer. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk a little bit about finance just for a second. Katrina Conroy is a new finance minister. Selena Robinson has a $5.7 billion surplus. Usually that says, hey, you're doing a good job. She lost that portfolio. Why did Mr. Eby not want Selena Robinson as the finance minister? 
Well, he was asked that and didn't really answer it that, that much. But again, we've talked about this before. There has been some documented disagreements between Selena Robinson and David Eby from the time when they were cabinet ministers. Selena Robinson became finance minister, and uh, very subsequent to that, uh, David Eby was no longer on Treasury Board, which is the number one most important government committee. Um, she lost her housing uh, responsibility, went to David Eby, who ended up firing the Board of BC Housing that she had appointed on her watch. So there had been some disagreements there, but she still gets a pretty big portfolio in advanced ed. Um, but she's out of finance. There's no question. I think, you know, it's um, it's a demotion, but it's not a huge demotion, but it is one. Mm-hmm. And Katrina Conroy, veteran uh, MLA um, from uh, the Kootenays. Uh, her husband, Ed, was the representative there before her. Uh, she's a veteran. Um, she did, by all accounts, a very good job in forestry. Uh, I think she probably wanted to stay there, but she inherits a pretty good budget, but she's probably a little worried about next year because the economic forecast that Selena Robinson was getting this week about what uh, holds in the future are not very good at all. The the economic growth rate in B.C. is going to shrink to a minuscule number, and that bode, does not bode well for government revenues in the subsequent years. So we're going to go from a huge surplus right now. wouldn't be surprised if Conroy has to deliver a significant deficit budget in, uh, in February. Hmm. Uh, housing, we were just talking about that in the first uh, hour. Uh, interest rate hike, again, that impacts people's ability to pay their mortgages, especially if you have variable rate, uh, variable rate mortgage. What can a provincial government actually do with housing? In this case, you have a housing minister, Ravi Kalo. Uh, is this about extracting more dollars out of Ottawa? Is this about a carrot and stick approach with municipalities to help build more houses and supply? What can a minister of housing in the provincial government actually accomplish where a a voter can say, oh, I see they've made a difference? Well, there's a new act that uh, was uh, passed just recently that gives the minister of housing widespread powers to deal with municipalities who do not build adequate supplies of housing. So there is a carrot and stick approach, but there's a lot of sticks in this bill. Uh, the government can give itself the power to eventually make zoning decisions if they want. If it wants, it can. It will have the power to overreach municipalities when it comes to uh, housing plans. So it's just the beginning of a brand new process that we haven't seen unfold yet. But it's going to be interesting to see Ravi Kalan, who's got uh, is now running one of the four priorities of the David Eby government. Uh, how he performs um, dealing with municipalities. I think in many respects, some municipalities will welcome the same fine. You want to take over housing? You know, uh, if you put yourself as a city councilor, I should sit through endless hearings with angry citizens yelling at them, whether they're nimbyism or whether it's the opposite. Councilors find themselves in the middle of these pitch battles in communities, and now perhaps the government takes on that role, and some municipalities might be quite happy with that. Uh, i got about 45 seconds left. Let's talk a little about Bowen Ma's ministry. We already have an environment ministry. What is the Ministry of Emergency Management and Climate Readiness? Is this about uh, sort of working within government or is this going to be a lot bigger? Well, you're going to see Bowen Ma replace Mike Farnworth as the person who has to go to all the wildfires and you know the floods as the as the government representative. So it's it's more on this climate emergency side where atmospheric rivers and wildfires. That's what she's going to be dealing with a lot more than uh, than just uh, uh, 
things that George Heyman dealt with in the past. So she's going to be very much associated with, I think, natural disasters and what to do to prevent them in the future. And uh, I think that'll elevate the profile of Bowen Law. Uh, I've got another 30 seconds, and I'm going to just... The $5.7 billion surplus, do you expect the government to spend it all, or do you think they'll leave some of it aside to go straight to debt payment? Well, it could be even more than that, because there's almost $5 billion in contingency funds that aren't spent. So there's a lot of money at David E.B. government's disposal. I think they're going to learn... They learned the lesson of Mike Dion and the Liberals in 2017, where they chose to retire a $2.9 billion surplus against the debt and got no political payoff for it at all. I think you're going to see a lot of this money spent on things that are probably going to make a lot of people very happy. Keith, thank you. Take care. Welcome back to the show. Well, British Columbia Premier David Eby appointed a new cabinet earlier today in a move many are saying is a blend of old and new faces since replacing former Premier John Horgan last month. Mr. Eby has quickly staked out health care, public safety, affordability and housing as his NDP government's priority issues. He's also announced more than a billion dollars in initiatives, including funding more police officers and health professionals, uh, providing income relief, electricity bill credits and forming the standalone uh, Ministry of Housing. He joins now, Premier Eby, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jess. Uh, what did it feel like? I'm just curious. Uh, you know, you got your colleagues. You had to pick a cabinet. What? What? I mean, this is the first time for you. Uh, what did that feel like? Just having all these people, and you got to choose who's going to be in the cabinet, who's not going to be in the cabinet. Uh, what was that like? Well, you know, it's it's an incredibly difficult process, Jess. I mean, we've got just such a, a talented group of people who have been elected. Uh, representing the diversity of the province from all across the province, all kinds of experiences that they bring to the table. Uh, and uh, and it's, it was incredibly hard uh, to, uh, to make these decisions. Uh, but um, coming out of that process, that challenging process, where I met with all my colleagues and, and, uh, and went through that, um, I think we've got a team here that really, uh, when British Columbians look at it, the goal is that they're able to see themselves in this cabinet. They're able to see... Uh, the diversity of life experiences. They're able to see people coming from communities like theirs. Uh, they're able to make sure that they have their voices heard at that cabinet table. And I think that's what we've done. And this is a team that's driven and is going to deliver on their priorities. And, and I'm excited uh, I'm excited that they've uh, said yes and they've taken on these challenges. Now, we've spent a lot of time talking about these new faces already uh, in, on, uh, in this program. I want to talk a little bit about your managerial style. Your predecessor had a, a reputation of being hands-off when it came to uh, ministries and ministers. Can we expect the same from you, or are you going to play a bigger role in how policy is shaped in ministries? Well, what, what people are going to see from me is a real focus on the uh, issues that matter to them. And, and these are issues that cross over between multiple ministries. You know, the, even the issue of housing, you've got municipal affairs, you've got skills training, you've got the Ministry of Housing itself. Uh, the issue of health care, you've got uh, certainly issues of mental health and addiction, as well as the Ministry of Health, but also poverty reduction. And so there are so many different pieces uh, to these issues that we face in the province. So for the Premier's office, I see my role as assisting ministers and coordinating so that they're not in their own silos, uh, so that they're able to work together to deliver for British Columbians, and not just between themselves, but also with local government, with local community leaders, um, so that British Columbians see results. The, the goal here is that um, uh, people see results that they can see and touch and feel in their communities. I don't think British Columbians expect us to solve all of these issues in the next two years. These are massive challenges. 
but they do expect to see things in their community to know we're pointed in the right direction. And that's my goal. And that's what I'll be working on with our cabinet and with my colleagues in government. I want to touch a little bit on diversity. And, and you know, I, my time as a reporter since the early 1990s and dating myself, of course, and to now, and you're seeing a greater diversity, of course, uh, in caucus and in cabinet as well. But sometimes ministries are not always equal. And what I mean by that, they're all very difficult to run it. And I'll be the first one to admit that. But based on um, uh, the requirements of a certain ministry and the budgets, they, some ministries can be elevated. Uh, today, when I look at your sort of core, four core ministries, uh, your health minister, your solicitor general, you also have your attorney general, and you have the finance ministry. Both of those, f- those four ministries uh, have a high priority, take a lot of the budget. Was there a desire on your part to have gender parity. In this case, you do have two men, two women. You have a woman of color as well. Was there a desire, not just in your cabinet, but on those higher uh, profile ministries with bigger budgets, that there's a desire to have gender parity there as well? Yeah, I I think it's important to think about the uh, life experiences that people bring to the table, uh, who they are, uh, what their uh, life stories are, what their experience is. That's all critically important. And every single person I put into any position in this cabinet, I wouldn't have put them there if I didn't think they were going to knock the ball right out of the park. These are people with proven histories, regardless of where they came from or who they are as individuals, that are going to do an exceptional job. And, and part of the work of assembling a cabinet is making sure that people can see themselves in that cabinet. And that's uh, absolutely addressing issues of gender and diversity, uh, racial diversity and, uh, and uh, uh, disability and so on. But, but, that, you know, that doesn't take away from, uh, it only contributes to the ability of these folks to really uh, just nail it in these positions and delivering for British Columbians on their priorities. When you're talking about public safety, something so crucial for people, housing, having a decent roof overhead you can actually afford, uh, making sure our economy is sustainable. These are major issues that people want to see results on, and every single one of these ministers is going to be able to help deliver on that. Mm-hmm. Now, you said, uh, as I said, actually, in the introduction, that you've uh, announced more than a billion dollars in initiatives uh, from funding more police officers and health professionals to providing income relief and uh, electricity bill credits. That's about a billion that's spent. You have a $5.7 billion surplus. It could be higher with the contingency. How much of that will you spend before the end of March? And how much of, if any, will go towards debt payment in your mind? Well, through, uh, through prudent decision-making, our government is in a good financial position. And, uh, and British Columbians uh, are looking at the economic headwinds uh, that we face globally. They're seeing rising costs at the, at the grocery checkout. Uh, they're seeing rising housing costs. Uh, and they're seeing serious challenges in community that we need to address. Uh, we are going to make sure that we're supporting British Columbians at this time when they need support. And there is no question that there are many British Columbians that need that support right now. Uh, And so delivering on those priorities for them, uh, thankfully, uh, through careful management over the last five years, uh, we're in a position to be able to do that. And we are going to do that. Uh, Government is about supporting people and addressing their priorities. uh, And that's what we're going to do. So over the next 12 weeks or so, a little bit more, we can expect more announcements that you say will help British Columbians uh, and you will be spending some of that $5.7 billion surplus that has been announced so far? Uh, so uh, I'm hearing from people about issues like uh, making sure that they can afford to pay the rent, making sure that they can afford to buy groceries, uh, making sure that they are not stuck in their cars in traffic jams, uh, that we're investing in infrastructure that's going to make our province go 
that we're building at a time when uh, globally we see uh, rising interest rates, slowing down economies, that we're going to build the kind of economy that can weather those kinds of impacts. And uh, that's what these resources are for. These are public resources that are going to be deployed to make our province stronger. And uh, that's what British Columbians elected our government to do. And that's what we're going to do for them. Premier, uh, I know you've got a busy day. You've had a very busy day. We've run out of time. Look forward to having you on for a longer period uh, at a later date. If I don't speak to you, happy holidays to you and your family as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Jazz. Back at you. Have a great holiday. Uh, uh, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to all your listeners. If uh, if I'm not back on, but you know what? I have a feeling I might just be looking forward to that. $5.7 billion. I think you're going to be on again, my friend. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> okay, thanks, Jazz. Bye. Uh, the owner of a Vancouver luxury boutique is speaking out after an apparent vandalism or apparent vandalism uh, that targeted her business. Uh, City Lux Boutique, a women's uh, clothing store specializing in dresses, has been sharing stories on its Instagram page saying two women may have been involved in vandalism against the store. Now, you might remember City Lux being in the news a couple of years ago after someone stole a couch from them in broad daylight. Kim Goyen is the store manager at City Lux Boutique. She joins us now. Kim, thank you for speaking to us today. Oh, you're so welcome. Uh, tell me what transpired uh, uh, in, in your store to, uh, overnight. Overnight, I think it was about 4, 4.40 a.m. where two women were just kind of hanging out around the store. Um, and it happens all the time because we're on the main street. We're only a block away from Granville. Mm-hmm. Uh, they hang around the store all the time because the bus stop is actually right in front of our store. Um, and... I guess they wanted to just break the window, and they broke the window. They managed not to get in, but after they just broke the window, they left. They left at around exactly at 5.01 a.m. Now, uh, it wasn't a case of just vandalism where they wanted to break the window. Your sense is they wanted to break the window to get inside to steal something? Um, The thing is, it's hard to say because at first they were looking at our mannequins, kind of like looking around, pointing at certain things. They hung around our front window looking inside a lot of the time. And then it was just the break of the window and instantly when it shattered, they left. So it's hard to say if they were going to come in or not, or they just did this for fun and boredom. Uh, and, And have you had any challenges like this in the past? Oh, for sure. If you walk down our block, like you can count eight windows that are broken. Today. And, you know, if you, no, not today, just in general, like every other week, some, some, somebody breaks somebody else's window, like across the street, I can see three. If you walk down our block, you'll probably count for more four or eight. Uh, how do you deal with that? I mean, it, it, I mean, in some the way. The thing is, we just have to, we just have to deal with it. Like they don't, they do not, they're not charged. And if they are charged, they get released on some type of mental illness thing. The thing is, we have a lot of compassion for them. Like, we have some really great people who do, are the homeless that come by and visit the store, and they love the dresses and things like that. So we try our best not to judge. But mm-hmm. when these things happen, it's just so hard, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, you sell sort of specialized dresses uh, at your store, City Lux Boutique? Yeah, we specialize in event wear. So everyone comes here and they shop for dresses and things like that um, for galas, charity functions, work parties, weddings. Uh, when did you notice it getting worse? Oh, 100%. Like this already was normal before COVID, but definitely like during COVID, it probably got much worse. Why do you think that is during COVID? Is, is it just greater desperation? 
Um, I definitely think it would be desperation, for sure. In this case, though, one would argue, as you're saying, they, they didn't, maybe they wanted to get in, but they didn't. But in some cases, this is vandalism for the sake of vandalism, though, isn't it? Mm-hmm, for sure, because we had our other window broken in three months ago. Mm-hmm. And again, it wasn't like they attempted to kind of go in. It was just a break of the window, and then they left. Hmm. Uh, what's, I mean, it, you, I'm going to assume you have insurance, but there's got to be a, a cost to you on a regular we, basis. We do have insurance, but this comes out of pocket. You know what I mean? Like, this isn't big enough for us to take a hit with our insurance at the end of the year. So we, this comes right out of pocket. Like, that window was five grand. This window is going to be around the same thing. Oh, wow. And sorry, when was the last one broken? Um, three months ago. So it takes that long to get a window replaced right now because of all the vandalism that has been happening downtown. Oh, wow. So you have to wait that long. That mm-hmm. is... Uh, uh, have you thought... This is about- everywhere. Yeah. This is everywhere. Like all the glass companies, if you call them, they only take existing customers. Have you talked to other people along your street? Are they seeing, seeing the same thing then beyond just the broken windows? But they're dealing 100%. with the- 100%. Like next door to us, it's a beautiful consignment. It's called Mine and Yours. They get broken into every two weeks. What do you think needs to happen? It's just hold. Just to hold these people accountable, I think there just needs to be more police presence downtown just to kind of keep everything safe. Like Vancouver's become a huge spot for tourism and things like that. But our downtown isn't the same as it used to be. This isn't only me. This is kind of everybody that would kind of probably think the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you seeing uh, there's not enough police right now in your mind just walking the beat? No. So there's a week ago that our customer's car got broken into and what was stolen was her baby bag at 2 p.m., midday on Howe Street. Uh, in, in this case, are you going to stay at this location? Well, the thing is, our customers, we've grown such a big clientele and everyone knows that we are here. We have a great relationship with the neighborhood and things like that. So, yeah, we are, are going to stay. But obviously, if things get worse and our employees are somewhat in danger, again, we have girls that are working from like with us that are, you know, first years of uni- university. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we want to keep them safe. It's just one of those things I don't want the girls to be working and also looking at the door wondering what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you said you have two, you've lost two windows this year then? Yes. Uh, so that's about $10,000 you've paid out of pocket just for the windows. Yes. That's a huge expense for, for, for a small business. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, and that's not even including like during COVID, things have changed like drastically mostly even in the middle of covid not many people were shopping you could imagine um everything else that they're dealing with and then as small businesses that had to you know close and things like that because they couldn't make ends meet we managed to make it through um covid with our amazing you know customer support Uh, uh, just shopping online and things like that mm -hmm. And in this case, so you're going to obviously get that window replaced. Do you know how long it will take you? It will probably be at least February of 2023 of the second window. And that's only if we're lucky if there's no other windows that are going to be broken during the time. So until then, you have this broken window and customers have to sort of walk past it when they come in? Well, they're obviously curious. They're just like, oh, no, what happened to your window? Things like that. And they're just like, you know... I saw a couple stores down, like there's other windows that are broken. 
Kim, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I know it's been a difficult period uh, for you and your employees. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate you making time for us to, to tell your story. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you so much. We've got a hot one for you. That's hot. Feeling hot, hot, hot. Oh, you're hot. Oh, that's hot. Feeling hot, hot, hot. Now, the hot story hot take. Hey, welcome back to the show. Uh, yeah, this one caught my eye today, and I really wanted to talk talk about this, this story. Langley Township Council voted uh, early this week to explore separating the RCMP from the shared force between the township and Langley City. The motion passed on Monday, but it does not commit to the move, but will allow staff to look at potential costs uh, and procedures. The idea has the support of the township mayor, uh, Eric Woodward. Uh, uh, here he is uh, speaking to Global BC earlier today. I think it will potentially benefit both municipalities in the long run. In the short run, it, it, it you know benefits the township of Langley to really consider this because the police facilities, um, the detachment uh, buildings are located within the township of Langley mostly. And so the, the cost for us, the disruption to us is very minimal. And we're growing at such a rapid rate compared to our neighbor that we need the space. Uh, now, I understand some of the arguments that uh, the township mayor uh, is making, and I, and I do understand the, the issue of growth. Uh, but this this one stuck with me. Just The conversations we're having, we're, we've been having this conversation in Surrey. And it's already been incredibly frustrating the last uh, three years uh, listening to what has been uh, transpiring in that city. And that continues. Take a listen to my conversation yesterday with Brenda Locke. Now, much of that was on uh, her in Ottawa talking about infrastructure and uh, big city mayors getting together. But near the end of the interview, I did ask a few questions on the Surrey Police Service. And, of course, she talked about the fact that a report is being prepared by the by, by Christmas time. It'll be done, uh, presented for a council. And then, of course, it'll go to the Solicitor General uh, in mid-January. Uh, and I did ask, well, if you're doing all that, which is really about, do you stop the Surrey Police Service and, and, and uh, stick with RCMP? I'm going to assume the Surrey Police Service, as this is going on, will uh, stop hiring temporarily. Take a listen. And to confirm, you've told the Surrey Police Service to uh, stand down on new hirings at this particular point, and, and are they doing so? Uh, it, we did ask them to do that, and no, they are not. All right, so that, uh, that, that I guess, is one more issue that we'll have to discuss. Uh, it, it does go on and on, uh, Your Worship, and I, I look it, forward to... Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say you're absolutely right, Jazz. This has been a, a very um, unique exercise for all of us and, and uh, challenging, too, for not just for the people that are doing the work that I'm doing, but it's for the people on the ground. I feel sorry uh, that we're going through this for the members of the SPS and for the RCMP. This is uh, challenging for everybody. That's Brenda Locke, uh, the uh, mayor of Surrey. Now, let's put aside the, the, the soap opera that is Surrey just for a moment. 21 mayors, 21 councils, 21 police chiefs, 21 fire chiefs. This region is balkanized in regards to its governance and policing. And let's just talk about policing just for a moment. We should not be having this conversation in Surrey or, for that matter, Township of Langley and the city of Langley. We have to start thinking bigger than that. We have to start talking about regional policing. We have to look at what other jurisdictions are doing in other communities in Canada. But somehow here, we continue to go down this road, this petty, the petty politics that you see. You saw it in Surrey. 
And yes, I see growth in Langley Township, but that's not the conversation. In many ways, I think this is where the provincial government has to play a much more significant role. And perhaps it may not be a priority today. Maybe it's four years from now, but we have to get to a point where we start fundamentally talking about regional policing. It cannot just be about Langley Township feeling it needs its own detachment and wants to uh, get away from little Surrey, uh, Surrey, uh, city of Langley. It can't just be the constant fighting in Surrey. We're heading in the wrong direction. We truly are. Joining me now to talk about this is uh, it's got me going. So I wanted to talk to our next guest because he knows this subject. Well, Kashi is former West Vancouver Police uh, uh, Chief. He is a former BC Solicitor General, and he's the City Councilor in Richmond. He joins us now. Hi, Cash. Hi, Jazz. Hi. Sorry, I just uh, <laughs> I, I saw this today, and it kind of set me off a little bit. I just I, and I understand why the township's doing it in the city, and I, I know the challenges of Surrey. But do you sometimes listen to this and just sort of shake your head? It's like, where are we? It's the third decade of the twenty first century, and we're still talking about these little fiefdoms. Well, I've been talking about this for over twenty five years, and I haven't thrown up my hands yet and says it's inevitable. It's not going to change. What you're seeing in Langley, what you'll see elsewhere, what you're seeing across Canada, these are symptoms of a broader problem that we have to recognize. And one is that our public services are not held to account the way we expect them to be. They're not as efficient as we expect them to be. They're not as effective as we expect them to be. Now, you're, uh, you laid out the balkanized approach. You laid out the amount of mayors, the amount of uh, uh, public services available in this area. Could you imagine, Jazz, if we looked at our transit system in this fashion, if we looked at our water system, our sewage system, all of those in this balkanized attitude approach of not wanting to change where we would be right now. We are not divided by mountain ranges, massive lakes or open country. We are divided by laneways, and we have this ongoing rhetoric that comes not only from the local politicians, it comes from so-called police leaders in this area that are just resistant to so many changes. We're in the 21st century. We're operating like we're in the 19th century. We need to change this, Jazz. So I understand your frustration, and I know you're very passionate about this because you and I have talked about this for so much over the past 30 years. Um, should are the RCMP be in policing at all, like the traditional policing rule, the RCMP, the contract policing, or, does, or do they have to be reimagined as well? I think you're going to see a pendulum swing back to what they were meant to be, and they were meant to be a federal force. If you look at the Constitution Act and you realize that the responsibility for policing within the provincial boundaries is the provincial government, and we have to come back to that. And the RCMP were meant to be a federal role. They took over contract services. They were just supposed to be for a limited period of time until other agencies were able to catch up. We've gone beyond that. We've gone to this uh, costly contractual service for example in bc we spend over two billion dollars in policing yet we've never done an audit on how much we spend in policing but it's not meant to be but if we bring it back if if we're looking for those contemporary solutions to this problem it lays on the lap of the provincial government because under the police act they're responsible for policing they delegate it down to local governments through that act, but they are actually in charge of it. Yeah, I mean, governments have uh, so much uh, to worry about every day. And in, in this new cabinet that's been announced today, we've got housing and affordability challenges, mental health and addiction, all those challenges. At what point do you have a government that says, 
we're going to take this on and we're going to move ahead with a Metro Vancouver police force and we're going to actually have a BC police force as well. I mean, how far away do you think we truly are? Because I can't see this particular government two years away from the election tackling this issue. How far away are we to, to, to actually getting to that point? Uh, we're uh, a long ways away. <clears throat> but let me come back to when I was in Victoria, and this was part of the problem because I hit the resistance to change, is we were looking at a model which created the B.C. Provincial Police Service. We were looking at metro areas, one being Metro Vancouver, the other being the Capital Region, and the other being the Central Okanagan, where you've got those dense populations where we would have that unified police approach to the particular problems. And again, other rural communities Communities could contract their police services through the BC Provincial Police Service. Things, this brings the accountability right back to British Columbia and takes it away from Ottawa. But I hit so much resistance, not only from local politicians, but certainly from, as I mentioned, police leaders who are resisting any changes to the police model. Mm-hmm. Uh, this Surrey, the, the Surrey Police Service, uh, Surrey RCMP, from day one, I, I stayed a way from picking sides on this. My number one goal is always just be transparent. What are the costs for this transition, what it would look like? And that's always been the challenge. And I think some of that's coming out now. Uh, But in your mind, uh, does it matter if it goes back to RCMP or Surrey Police Service? Because it would seem to me that the provincial government actually has to drive this, not just in Surrey, but for the metro region, rest of this province. The the, the debate in Surrey is almost sort of a, a soap opera, but it's not the number one issue we need to be worrying about. No, the number one issue we need to be worrying about is creating safe environments, safe communities, protective services. You know, Surrey went through uh, their divisive uh, debates going forward during the election. They were worried about the color of the uniform when they should have been worried about the public safety in that community. If you look at the uh, crime index, you'll see that's the most dangerous place in Canada over the last six months. Those are the issues, Jazz, and you're right. That's what we should be talking about, how we can create those safe communities, not the color of the uniform. Well, if you're a betting man, what do you think is going to happen in Surrey? Well, uh, I'll tell you what I think should happen because this is costing the taxpayer multi-multi-millions of dollars. I think the provincial government needs to show some leadership here and deliver change to policing. And that change is bringing back some local accountability to Surrey, and that's through the Surrey Police Service. I think at the end of the day, unfortunately, it won't be a decision based on what's best for the people that live, work, and play in Surrey. I think it's going to be a political decision at the end of the day. And I think the NDP are going to look at that when they make that decision. Yeah, and I, I, I don't disagree with you on that. I think um, it, and that's the challenge. I think the provincial government has to always drive this change. When, the minute you, you hand it over to one municipality or one council, this always transpires. It has to be a senior level of government, and, 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 and Surrey is a classic example of how things should not uh, have been handled, that's for sure. Uh, Cash, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Really appreciate it, and uh, always look forward to having you on the show again because uh, this issue is not going away, and as the city continues to grow and things become even more complex in regards to law enforcement uh, it is an issue that <laughs> that will be front and center that's for sure thank you so much all the best jazz well the vancouver international auto show was canceled in 2020 2021 and 2022 first by pandemic restrictions followed by supply chain issues plaguing the automobile sector which again has cancelled 2023 due to a lack of new cars and automakers willing to showcase them joining me now to talk a little bit about the auto industry and where we stand and uh, uh, on this issue is Jeremy Cato, automotive journalist behind CatoCarGuy.com. Hello, Jeremy. 
Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well, my friend. <laughs> I, you know, I haven't been to the auto show in a while, uh, and I've always enjoyed the times that I've gone. Uh, when do you think there's going to be some light for the the automotive industry in regards to supply chain challenges, many other disruption, chips, everything else? Uh, is there light in the, at the end of the tunnel here? Uh, there is. And in fact, if you track uh, both new and used car prices, they are actually coming down, especially used car prices. As supply has increased and uh, prices have gone, or the cost of borrowing, I should say, have gone up, the prices have gone down to match that. And then the, the various supply chain issues are have pretty much worked their way through the system. If you look at the survey of uh, supply um, the supply um, chain managers and whatnot, they pretty much were done with supply chain bottlenecks. Um, but that's not what's killing auto shows. What's killing auto shows? <laughs> Nobody <laughs> goes, and they're very expensive to put on, or not yeah. enough people go, I should say. And they're extremely expensive to put on. And a, and a show such as the Pacific International or the Vancouver Auto Show, that's really a sales show. It's not really an extravaganza uh, like the really, really big ones have been in the past, which would be Frankfurt or Tokyo or even Toronto. Mm-hmm. And the cost of, for dealers, which basically supply the product on the floor, uh, is pretty high. And especially when they, they don't have a lot on the dealer lots at, at, at this time. And they really want to move those products into the hands of buyers. So are people just not going because you can research all this stuff now that you don't need to actually go to an auto show? Is that what technology is part of the issue, or is it just uh, people looking elsewhere? Uh, All of the above. Hmm. Uh, What you're looking at now is uh, the enthusiasm for cars and, uh, you know, trucks as an exciting well, it's not like it was when I was 16 or 17 or 18. My kid's 28. He's grown up with the cars all over his life. He's seen every car in the universe pretty much and ridden in a lot of them. Uh, he doesn't care. <laughs> I mean, oh. a car to him is like a refrigerator or a, or a <laughs> smartphone. It's just a tool. Uh, he's not particularly, you know, he loves, he's loved riding to school in an Audi R8. Mm-hmm. Um but is he going to spend his own money on that? Yeah, not likely. His last vehicle was a Honda CRV, that which Dad bought actually. So, <laughs> so, so should we blame bike lanes and uh, and transit and uh, a new way of looking at transportation, perhaps in in in, in sort of big cities? Uh, some of that for sure, uh, and some of that is if you look at the the research on what the millennials want, um, they want vehicles that they can pack three or four uh, people into, you know, millennials seem to, the research is showing, I'm not making this up, um, you know, they want to do things together. They do things in groups. They they even date in groups. Like, you know, like when you and I were, you know, in our 20s, the the thought of going on a double date was not usually the most exciting Mm -hmm. prospect um, for a young single person. But today, the millennials are doing things together. So when they do buy a vehicle, it's not some kind of sexy uh, hot rod, it, it's it's Honda CRV. You know, they can pack three of their friends into it and go skiing. I was I remember reading about this that the car dealership's sort of existential challenge is that millennial, because some some could argue Gen Z, where the vehicle, as you say, isn't the priority. In some cases, men they don't even get driver's licenses. No, you know, I, I hosted a, a show on the CTV and BNN for. 10 years called car business and my co-host on that show, you know, again, he's a car guy, uh, very interested in cars has spent 
$200,000 restoring a Porsche. His daughter, who's a lawyer in Toronto, mm-hmm. has never had a driver's license, and she's in her 30s now. And when you, you know, when you ask, you ask uh, Nor, why don't you have a driver's license? And she says, why do I need one? My husband has a driver's license in a car, and my dad has a driver's license in a car, and transit here in Toronto is just fine. So, you know, that's that's, and and the longer story of this, you know, jazz is that we're seeing the commod the commoditization of vehicles now, and and the more they become electrified, the more they become a commodity. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's almost no difference between the performance of one EV versus the other. You can style them differently. Mm-hmm. You can equip them differently. But really what, what goes on in terms of performance, a, a Kia Nero EV goes zero to 100 kilometers an hour in five seconds. That's as fast as any hot rod you're going to get. Wow. You know, that's, that's actually <laughs> a very, very good point too, right? In, in regards to once the technology is, is figured out, you can style a little differently. You're right, but you know, a, a big screen is a big screen, and uh, and uh, the technology in the grand scheme of things is going to be to be the same. I guess it's partially also cost of living too. Uh, if you're already you know uh, trying to get into the Vancouver market or any big city market, it doesn't have to be Vancouver. Toronto's the same, uh, and Calgary and Edmonton are getting there. But a- any city where you're trying to save uh, and to to get the basics like shelter. You, you, if you can rely on a decent transit system or actually can live near work, why would you bother spending and spending your time worrying about uh, a vehicle? You may not need it. So why would you want to attend uh, an auto show? Transit uh, is the key here um, because we have an abysmal transit system in, in lower man. It's, you know, there, there are a few SkyTrain stations here and there, but primarily we're a bus system. And it's not the most efficient way to move people around. But as the provincial government, which claims this particular provincial government claims that is very much a a transit friendly, green friendly um, government, as we modify our transit system, I think you're going to see even greater, more disinterest in in owning cars unless you absolutely have to own one. Mm -hmm. And and that's what that's what you're seeing in the research uh, is that you're seeing people will buy a car if they need it. If they don't need it, they don't want to buy it. And if you don't need it, you know, a new car between insurance and payments and maintenance, that's a thousand bucks a month. Yeah, absolutely. You can put a thousand bucks towards your, your house payment versus a car payment. Well, you know, that explains why, you know, people are less interested in owning your car because it's so expensive. Yeah, absolutely. Jeremy, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Terrific. Always great to chat. All right. If we don't chat uh, again, Merry Christmas to you, to you and your family, and uh, you have yourself a wonderful holiday. Hey, back at you. All right. That's Jeremy Cato. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980-CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.